מבדיל בין קודש לכל חטאותינו. I discovered pretty quickly that if I wanted to fit into the religious community in Jerusalem, I had to dress the part. People told me I looked too American. The first thing I needed was a white shirt. This was hard to find since no one in Queens had worn a white shirt since 1966, but my father dug one up and mailed it to me in Israel. I also needed a cardigan sweater. The sweater was important because it was dressy, but it didn't strangle you when you shuckled. But the key... The key was my kippah. I considered my collection. The white nylon job, the standard in American synagogues, was so flimsy the first breeze would blow it off your head. The glittery tinsel on my red velvet special showed I had just arrived from New Jersey to buy a bar mitzvah present for my nephew. My daily kippah was made of wool, which was too thick, clearly manufactured by hippie friends in San Francisco. I also had a little box top. Perfect for a trip to Uzbekistan, but hard for me to wear with any sense of authenticity. The answer was a tightly knit dark blue kippah with a gothic border. It was simple yet elegant, and it could be held discreetly in place by a bobby pin. Or if I wanted to be really stylish, I could wear it over my right ear, as if God was to my right. But I wasn't ready for that, so I just put it on top of my head. Now I was set. All I needed were experiences. I went up to the city of Tzfat, high in the hills of the Galilee, a, a town which is half ancient ruins and half urban renewal. My hosts were a young American couple in their mid-twenties, Ben and Naomi. Ben was a bear of a man with a bulky blonde beard, and he greeted me at the door with a hug that lasted five minutes, even though we had never met. This was the first religious family I ever stayed with, and I was fascinated with everything, from the huge books with the dense text and marbleized pages to the framed photos of great rabbis on the living room wall. Friday night, Erev Shabbat, we sang Nigunim, songs without words to God. They had left a small nightlight on for me in my bedroom, but they preferred candlelight, so once the candles burned out, we continued to sing at the table sitting in the pitch dark. Shabbat afternoon, a middle-aged man named Aryeh appeared at the door. He came in the house, and within a moment, I felt two hands on top of my head. It was Aryeh. Let me see if I can find your holy spot. Ah, here it is. And he bent down and kissed me on top of my head. He asked me my Hebrew names, and then he spun out a long midrash explaining what they revealed about my character and about my destiny. Naomi had seemed nervous from the moment that Aryeh had arrived, and then she picked up their baby son, announced that she had just remembered that she had promised to visit the neighbors, and left the house. Aryeh and Ben sat down across the table from me, and they started arguing obviously picking up from a previous discussion. It took me quite a while to understand what was at stake. Aryeh wanted Ben to become his Rebbe, not his rabbi, his Rebbe, his spiritual guide and mentor, his guru. It was an incredible request, and Ben kept saying he wasn't ready. This is too fast for me, Aryeh. Oh, Ben, you can't stand still. You've got a pure soul, I can tell. You must take the next step. I still need my own Rebbe. I'm not ready to lead anyone else. Ben, you must prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. 
and I heard those words directed at me. Prepare yourself. Then, I want you to get up every morning and daven with two sets of tefillin, one on your left arm and one on your right, and you must hold your baby son next to your heart while you pray. And now, as they argued, they started to sing together, a song without words. And once a week, Ben, you should go to the mikveh. The ritual bath will make you feel pure, and then you will feel more ready. You're pushing me, Aryeh. You're twice my age. Why don't you be my Rebbe? Don't make jokes, Ben. Oh, and one more thing. You must rise at midnight and recite Tikkun Chatzot. This was thrilling. Exactly what I had come for. These two were battling on a higher plane. It was mystical combat. And they sang and they rocked until suddenly Ben's face turned red and he became still and he started to shake. And then Ben screamed, I'm not ready! And Ben started to cry. And Arye took him in his arms and the two of them rocked back and forth, crying and humming softly, You're ready, Ben. You're ready. And as the sun set, they formed a single mass in silhouette against the window, and the singing and the crying stopped. And I was concentrating so hard on trying to feel ready, listening so carefully, I could distinguish each man's separate breathing. We sat together without speaking until it was pitch black, and in that darkness, suddenly, I felt it. Ben had accepted. He was now Aryeh's Rebbe. It felt like the truest moment in my entire life. When Naomi came home, I felt awkward. She had missed this profound transformation in her husband's being, and that they had allowed me to be present was a tremendous honor, but it was as if I had inadvertently taken her place. We made Havdalah to end Shabbat, and then Aryeh left, and Naomi closed the door after him, as if she was checking to make sure that he was really gone. And I kept waiting for Ben to tell her, to tell her about everything that had happened. But he didn't say a word. Naomi came and sat down in Aryeh's seat across the table from me. She leaned over, looked me in the eye, and said, That guy's a nut. And that seemed true, too. When I got back to Jerusalem, there was a letter waiting for me from my brother. He thought my idea of going to a yeshiva instead of college was wonderful, something he had always wished he had done for himself. And he had come to his own enormous decision. He had decided to become a rabbi. So now my search for the perfect yeshiva and the perfect rebbe started in earnest. I went to the yeshiva of the Western Wall, and there I watched strapping young guys in white shirts and black pants dancing backwards for half a mile away from the Kotel so they wouldn't turn their faces for one moment from God's holy temple. I joined them for services. 
I wanted to have really good concentration on my prayers, really good kavanah. But the kid in front of me was shuckling like crazy, and I was shuckling, and we couldn't get in sync, and the back of his head kept getting closer and closer until it cracked me in the nose. At the yeshiva fire of Torah, the Rebbe told me, Judaism is like going up a down escalator. If you don't keep going up, you'll get carried down. You cannot stand still. I thought this was brilliant. And then I talked to the students. You know, Judaism is an escalator. Stay on the escalator. Keep going up that escalator. And suddenly I remembered that my grandmother had always been terrified of escalators. And no matter how many times we tried to convince her that she wouldn't fall down the steps, she wouldn't set foot on an escalator. And I was the only one who understood that she wasn't afraid of falling down the steps. She was afraid of getting sucked in at the top when the steps disappear. I got myself invited to 10, 20, 30 Shabbat meals, and despite my best efforts to observe observant Jews and emulate their more enlightened state, I just couldn't feel the beauty in the routine, and I was sighting only the rarest glimpse of spiritual ecstasy. Little did I know how much discipline, how much faith, how much willingness to override life's nitty-gritty was required to remain on such a lofty plane. My parents were writing me twice a week. They wanted me to know that they thought my idea of going to yeshiva instead of college was terrible. But the decision was up to me. Then my mother started calling me on my kibbutz in the desert, and she thought she had to scream all 6,000 miles to Israel. Hello, Donald? Yes? What have you decided? Are you there? I'm here. I haven't decided anything. I couldn't decide. I wanted to be a Torah true Jew, but I didn't want to get brainwashed. Finally, my parents came all the way to Israel just to tell me the decision was up to me. At the end of the year in June, I went down to the Kotel in the middle of the night. I watched an old man sweep up the notes that had fallen out of the cracks during the day. I thought of the escalator. I remembered those guys dancing backwards, and I kept seeing the back of that kid's head coming closer and closer to my nose, and I knew I wasn't ready to go to yeshiva. And so at age 18, finally really ready for Camp Ramah, I went to Brown University. My first morning, I was davening in my corner of our dorm room, wrapped in my talit and my tefillin, when my roommate, Anthony Skarna, woke up and looked across. And I'll never forget his face when he saw me, a ghostly figure in black leather straps, a white striped shawl, and my pajamas. Friday nights, I would walk home from the kosher dinner at Hillel, the Jewish student center, and pass the frat parties, I could hear the pounding music while I read alone in my room. All day, I tried to feel Shabbat as what Heschel described to be a timeless experience. But I was antsy for Shabbat to end already, goddammit, so I could write my papers and think of somebody to call. Anthony was good about my special demands, but no matter how many times we went over it, every once in a while on Saturday afternoon, Anthony would forget and accidentally turn off all the lights on his way out of our dorm room. And I would sit in the dark through the long New England twilight, feeling like I was living an old Jewish joke. I got the feeling that the only thing anyone really noticed about me was my kippah. Once, 
A beautiful student asked me out of the blue what it's like to live for God. I'm no monk, I wanted to scream to her. It's you I'm dreaming about, not God. But I stared at her, startled, bashful, undone. I tried to explain my growing doubts to the students at Hillel with this Hasidic story. Once there were two brothers, Rebbe Elimelech of Lezensk and Rebbe Zushia of Anapol. Now these two traveled throughout the world, and they were so holy that wherever they made Shabbos, they practically rose up to heaven. One day, as Shabbos was ending, just after Avdala, Rebbe Zushia looked at his brother and he said, <gasps> Suppose we've been fooling ourselves. Suppose that there really is no such thing as Shabbos, and we just think that we're feeling something because we're working so hard to feel something. Let's put Shabbos to a test. This week, we'll make Shabbos on Wednesday instead of Saturday, and if it feels the same, we'll know. The whole thing is a sham. All day Tuesday, the two brothers cooked and cleaned. They scrubbed their house, and they scrubbed themselves, and on Tuesday night they davened. They made kiddush, and they had challah. And all day Wednesday, they kept Shabbos. And on Wednesday night, after they made avdalah, Rabbi Zushia said to his brother, <gasps> It felt the same! We've been fooling ourselves. The two brothers were distraught. They didn't know what to do. And finally they went to their Rebbe, the Magid of Mezrich, and told him everything. The Rebbe laughed. My children, where do you think Shabbos goes during the rest of the week? It is just there above our heads. But you two are so holy that you managed to bring it down on Wednesday instead of Saturday. The Rebbe's answer was good enough for the two Hasidim, but it wasn't good enough for me. It was even worse when I went home to Queens. After Shabbat dinner on Friday night, my brother and I would always get into the same argument. I would say, so tell me one more time, why do you follow Jewish law? Well, the traditional answer is that it's the word of God. We don't really have a choice in the matter. Mm, but you don't really believe that. I mean, not literally. Why do you follow it? Well, I like what Rosenzweig said. The Torah is the record of a divine encounter between God and humanity. But being fallible humans, we may have made some mistakes in the transmission. So which part did we get wrong? I also like what Buber said. The Torah was given to each of us personally, and each of us must respond to that which speaks to our own heart. But suppose nothing, nothing is speaking to my heart. Look, it's our heritage, and it's a good way of life, and that's enough for me. And the problem was that this discussion would inevitably turn into an intellectual debate. And I could always talk just a little bit faster than my brother. And at some point he would say, you're not listening to me. No, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. And then I would tell him this story. And already my brother knew what was coming. Once, there was the Schmalzer Rebbe. Every Friday night, thousands of Hasidim would come from all over the world to the Rebbe's Tish to taste a piece of the Rebbe's challah. 
One Friday night, the place was packed wall to wall Hasidim, but the Rebbe was late. So when he finally arrived, the crowd parted down the middle, and the great Rebbe slowly made his way to the front of the room. He picked up the cup of wine, and he started to say Kiddush. In a tiny voice, he sang, Baruch. And thousands of Hasidim started singing and swinging and swaying. And this went on for two hours until finally they calmed down and the Rebbe said, Otto. And they sang and they swang until three o'clock in the morning when the Rebbe at last finished the Kiddush and made Motzi on the challah. And those thousands of Hasidim descended upon the Rebbe's challah and accidentally tore the Rebbe to pieces. And the Rebbe's grandson, in trying to understand this terrible tragedy, explained, If you want to be a Rebbe, don't look like a Chala. And my brother said to me, It's impossible to talk to you. The next year, I went to visit my brother in Israel when he started rabbinical school. On Simchat Torah, I joined a group from B'nai Akiva, the Orthodox Zionist youth movement. I was looking for that same passionate dancing that had inspired me at the Hezer Yeshiva. But midway through the evening, I realized that they had rewritten all of the songs to be about building settlements. And then on a bus, a woman accosted me because I was wearing my kippah, the one with the gothic border that made me fit in. And she said, you right-wingers, you are ruining this country. You mean me? But I'm for peace. On my El Al trip home, Every 10 minutes, I was recruited to join another minion in the back of the plane. I davened enough to cover three weeks on a single flight. I tried to accept that if I followed the mitzvot, I would come to believe in time, that I would make that wild, insane leap of faith, that Jewish law and its millennia of interpretation, they would bring me closer to God's will. But instead, I felt like I was falling. At the end of my junior year of college, I decided for the first time not to work in a Jewish summer camp. I felt incredibly guilty. I was letting down my brother. I was letting down young Judea. I was letting down the Jewish people. But I wanted to stay in New York and work on a film instead. So I wrote my brother a 15-page agonized letter in tiny script detailing every argument that had gone on in my head. And I mailed it off to him in Israel. And I knew that he was going to answer me right away, that he would take up each and every one of my points and tell me exactly what I should do. I waited for his reply. I, I waited all summer. And then it came, an aerogram, one page of blue paper. But there were just the logistics of his return flight. My brother was bringing back his fiancée, a secular Israeli woman who was becoming observant because of him. And then at the bottom of the page, scribbled in the corner, it said, Oh, and about your letter, I think your problem is that you think too much. Now, that was true. But boy, I wanted to kill him. When my brother came home from Israel, every time I saw him, I got angry again about the letter. But I checked myself. The family was celebrating the upcoming wedding, and this was no time for a fight. But one wintry Shabbat afternoon, we were lying on our beds in the bedroom, which we still shared, when my reading light went off. What happened? Oh, my brother said, I changed the timers on the lights. I like to take a nap on Shabbat afternoon. 
but I like to read in the afternoon, and there are no other lights on in the house. Well, just forget it and go to sleep. You're going to be a rabbi? You're a selfish schmuck. Stop whining. I'm not your mother. And then for the first time since I was 10 years old, I hit my brother. I punched him. And then we were standing in the hallway of our house, screaming at each other at the top of our lungs, and I was pounding on his chest, and my mother stuck her head out down the other end of the hall, and she yelled, They're fighting! Why are they fighting? And my brother said, Shh! We're not fighting! And then my brother's fiancée stuck her head out down the hall, and I could already see how things were going to be for them. They were going to have three kids in a religious Israeli household, and my brother was going to be a rabbi, and he knew everything he wanted, and I had always wanted to be just like him, and suddenly I realized that I didn't know a thing. I wanted to stop fighting, but I was screaming, and his voice was roaring up louder, and I kept pounding on him and pounding on him until I couldn't think, and finally I yelled, You're not my conscience! You're not my Rebbe! And my strength was gone. My arms kept slapping at him, but with nothing. Tell me what to do. And my brother grabbed my wrists in his big hands, and he shook me, and we stopped fighting. I was crying, and he was still. He looked into my eyes like he was trying to find something, like he was trying to find me. And he said, What's wrong? What's wrong? I Never Compete With My Brother was written and performed by Don Futterman. It was directed by Linda Lovich and Gizem Ozdemir, with engineering and sound design by Gizem Ozdemir. It was recorded at the TLV1 Studios in Tel Aviv. Our thanks to Natan Gesundheit for sampling his album Milava Malka. More of Natan Gesundheit's music can be heard on his Facebook page or on YouTube. An adaptation of an earlier version of I Never Compete With My Brother was published in Tikkun magazine and was selected as a notable essay of the year by the Best American Essays, edited by Joseph Epstein. The music at the beginning and end of our show is by Rory Sullivan. <laughs>